covers it all. Boy, I tell you what, if it didn't, we'd be in trouble. I mean, if there was even the smallest little part or piece that Calvary didn't cover, we'd be done. We'd be through. Calvary covers it all. Psalm chapter 105 tonight. Psalm 105. It's really kind of crazy when you think about the fact that we gather around here three times a week and listen to preaching, and we do that all the time. That's what we do. It's kind of weird, really, isn't it? When you think about it, in a way, it's kind of like, you know, oh, you, you spend your life going to church? Huh? I mean, the world can't wrap their mind around that, right? 
That seems crazy. <laughs> it does. I mean, I don't know, you know. And that you come here and listen to me, that's even crazier. <clears throat> man, you guys are gluttons for punishment. Man, oh man. Psalm chapter 105, beginning in verse 1, we're going to look at this and kind of take a look at the chapter a little bit and make an application tonight. The Bible says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the people. Sing unto Him, sing psalms unto Him, talk ye of all His wondrous works. Glory ye in His holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face forevermore. Remember His marvelous works that He hath done, His wonders and the judgments of His mouth. Father, tonight we ask that You would speak to our hearts, that You'd work in our lives. May we be encouraged from the passage. Or as we think about Psalm chapter 105, Lord, we recognize and realize that the psalmist is remembering, Lord, how we need to remember. May you be glorified in our lives tonight. And Father, may we never forget all you've done for us. And Lord, may we be encouraged tonight to live our lives for thee. We love you now and we thank you. And we give to you the glory and the honor. Fill us and use us tonight in Christ's name. Amen. This is one of three historical psalms in the book in this Hebrew hymn book, if you will. There's Psalm 78, there's 105, and then of course there's Psalm 106. Now, of course, books were very, very rare. If you by chance happened to get your hands onto one, a book, they were extremely expensive. They were beyond the reach of any normal person or any ordinary person for sure. Therefore, History was going to be remembered. It had to be remembered by rote, in the memories of the people. What better way to preserve it than by turning it into a verse or into, I guess, setting it to a tune, if you will. Think about how much theology we have received through songs, through hymn books, through child courses even, courses that we've learned along the way. When the pioneer missionary Robert Moffat went to Africa, one of the first concerns that he had was to put the language of the people in writing. The requirement uh, just totally and completely uh, burdened him down. It, he struggled with that because he was trying to teach, teach these natives the alphabet. His students were men that were trained in the wild. I mean, they were, they were people that were schooled in the tasks of the jungles. I mean, they, they, they had, uh, I mean, the ways of the bush, but I mean, to understand reading and writing and uh, education that way, no. I mean, they were intelligent, mind you, and they were educated, but in ways that suited their particular way of life. But the alphabet was beyond them. It didn't seem like they'd ever grasp it. I mean, why in the world should A be A? <clears throat> Why should B follow A? I mean, these are good questions, and the missionary was baffled. He was just, just overwhelmed trying to figure out a way to teach the alphabet. He's about ready to give up when one of his students suggested that he simply sing it. And of course, we all know that it's 
A, B, C, D, E, F, G. No, that's not really it. But anyway, so, but, but it's the same principle, isn't it? And so he decided, you know what, why not give it a try? Now, you can't set everything to music, though. I mean, he's thinking, wait a second, you know, the, I mean, we wouldn't put the Constitution into a song, make it a song to remember. We wouldn't get our bank accounts and our checkbook and put it to music. But why not give it a try? But what tune? What tune would Robert Moffat choose to set the alphabet to music in? Well, he was a Scot, and the tune that came to his mind was one that was very familiar to him, at least from his boyhood, Old Lang Syne. And it worked. The whole village soon rang with the alphabet to the strains of Old Lang Syne. You know, as we look back in the history of the Hebrews, they had long before been doing this. They set their history to music. And here in this particular psalm, we have a memorable example of a very effective way to learn history. Psalm chapter 105. So what do we learn from this passage? Well, as we begin to look at it, we begin to break it down, we see that the psalmist would spend the chapter reflecting, remembering, and revisiting Israel's history. And so as we can look at Psalm chapter 105, I want to focus our attention on verses 6 to 44 as we kind of begin to set the stage and lay the foundation for the thought. But first of all, we note the Abrahamic covenant that he addresses in verses 6 through 15. He expresses the unique and very special relationship that God had with Israel. A relationship that, let's be honest, was his idea. None of us seek God. He sought us. And in this case, he sought a nation and it was God's idea. The relationship was his doing. And he reminds them that he made this covenant and he kept it as he said he would. Even while they were small in number, he makes it clear to them and the psalmist reflects and reminds us and the people. He reminds them how God kept them safe and he, he kept them from being wiped out. Whether it was Abraham in Egypt, Isaac before Abimelech, maybe even Jacob facing Esau, every one of them being very vulnerable. But God extended his umbrella of protection and cared for them and kept them safe and preserved them through it all. We notice Joseph in Egypt, not Joseph in, but Joseph and Egypt. In verses 16 through 23, Joseph would be sold into slavery as we're all well aware and yet he would ascend to the greatest of heights there in Egypt. That's a miraculous feat. You think about it. It shouldn't have happened. It doesn't make any sense. Well, it doesn't make any sense if you take God out of it. <clears throat> but that position that he ultimately arrived at and that he was given would provide him an opportunity to meet the needs of his family through the famine that would last for those seven years. And eventually they would move into Egypt where <clears throat> there in the land of Goshen they'd be cared for. Then we notice in verses 24 through 38, the birth of a nation. 
and its deliverance from Egypt. And they were simply growing by leaps and bounds. And although they may have entered in as only 70 human beings, 70 people, now all of a sudden they were a force to be reckoned with. And of course we know that Pharaoh was very threatened by the very thought that possibly an enemy could come down into Egypt. And if the Israelites would side with the enemy, they'd be wiped out for sure. They enjoyed such great favor in Egypt for a time. But as they grew, that favor waxed and waned. And as a result, they were put into bondage and under bondage. Still God heard their cry and God continued to preserve them and to protect them through it all until one day he raised up a man by the name of Moses. With each and every plague that God sent, he revealed himself stronger and stronger and stronger until finally one day Pharaoh had had enough. So out of Egypt they went along with the spoils of the land. Then in verses 39 through 44, we're told about God's presence, his protection, and his provision. As they wandered, yes, and even as they found their way into the promised land. They traveled, and as they traveled, God made himself very visible. Of course, we know at night he was a pillar of fire, and during the day, a cloud of a pillar. His presence was seen both night and day. His leadership and direction was clearly expressed and given. The people cried over and over again to God to meet their every need. And guess what he did? He provided. Whether it was manna from heaven or whether it was meat that they longed for, God was gracious and God was generous. He provided them water from the rock in order to quench their thirst. And he confirmed his covenant with them time and time again until one day they physically entered the land of promise, a land that was flowing with milk and honey, a land that provided their every need. God gave them a land with homes and fields and fences and even vineyards already in place. What an amazing account. We are reminded through Psalm chapter 105 how big a part the Lord had in their history and the success that they had as a nation. And it's almost, it almost feels, excuse me, blasphemous to say a big part. Because without God, there'd be no part. Everything that happened to them, everything that happened was part of God's plan. He paved the way. He constructed the pathway. He orchestrated every up and down and every twist and turn. And through it all, God was faithful to them. Look at Psalm chapter 105, verse 44. <clears throat> it 
The Bible says, and gave them the lands of the heathen. And they inherited the labor of the people. Clearly from the passage, everything that they possessed was a result of God and his provision. There was, not, there was nothing that they had, nothing that they enjoyed, nothing they possessed that wasn't from God. The inhabitants of the land had spent a lifetime building their homes and working the land. They had risen up early every single morning. They toiled late into the night most of the evenings. Although they were an idolatrous and very superstitious people, their effort was rewarded by God. But listen, only rewarded by God because the fruit of their labor would become the inheritance of God's people. God had kept his word and given Israel the land he promised them, a land that had been prepared and readied by the heathen so that they could literally walk right in, take up residency, and begin firing on all cylinders. God kept his end of the bargain. God had fulfilled his promise. God had done every single thing he had promised to do on behalf of Israel and now it was time for the people of God to do the same. Look at verse 45. Here in verse 45, it expresses, this passage expresses God's expectation for them. What would be the standard response to God's mercy and grace in their lives? <clears throat> verse 45 reveals that standard that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise ye the Lord. What was to be the standard response of a God that keeps his promises, a God that provides and protects, a God that meets every need along life's journey? Observe his statutes. Keep his laws. Praise ye the Lord. We notice this observe his statutes. We think of those statutes, we, can, we consider them or we could view them as being his principles. To observe them is to keep or adhere to in practice, to adhere to in practice, to comply with, to obey them. And you know, God shares very practical and very profitable principles that benefit all of society, not just even the Christian. If the world itself, without Christ, would follow the word of God, they would find that things would work better. And he would have his people observe those principles and apply them in their lives and apply them in their nation. Observe his statutes. Seeing how I have met your needs, seeing how I've provided and protected you, seeing how I've kept my promises... Seeing how I've met your every need, keep, or should I say, observe my statutes. He goes on to say, keep his laws. Keep his laws. How do we respond to a God that does all these things for us, even though we do not deserve them? Well, we are to observe his statutes. We are to keep his laws. 
And those refer to specific laws. He wants our lives aligned with the Word of God. It is not enough to simply know the truth. We must apply it every day of our life. I can't tell you how many times I've run into folks over the years who were quick to point out to me and even proud to tell me how they've read through the Word of God and used to attend church all the time, although now they may don't. They don't go to church. They don't even believe the Bible half the time, or they don't certainly, they certainly don't observe it. But it's as if that revelation should discourage any further questioning or curiosity on my part. Oh, I've read through the Bible. Yeah, I've, uh, I used to go to church all the time. Oh, well then, in that case, have a good day. And I kind of get the feeling that they almost feel justified in their rejection of both Christ and Christianity, and that I should just simply accept it as well. That's the feeling I get sometimes when folks make those kind of statements. Almost like, hey, you know what? I've already done that. You're not talking to somebody that's stupid. Oh, I tried it. It didn't work. That's how I feel that what they're telling me. But what they don't understand is that there's a significant difference between knowing the law or the truth and obeying the law or applying the truth. A big difference. And I am happy they have read the Word of God. But I am not impressed. And can I tell you that neither is God? You reading the Bible, me reading the Bible, the world reading the Bible, that doesn't impress God. Because it's not enough to simply know the truth. You have to apply it every day. I'm sure that the Laodicean church read the Bible, and yet they were lukewarm, and God said he'd spew them out of his mouth. He is not impressed with our knowledge of the Bible. He is impressed with our application of the Bible. And this point is expressed by a little four-letter word. In the passage, we noted that it said, keep his laws. That four-letter word is keep. You say, what's the definition of keep? I'm glad you asked. I'll give you a couple of them. First, to hold. To retain in one's power or possession. Not to lose or part with. To keep anything in the memory, mind, or heart. When we think about this particular definition, we can't help but think about David who kept his father's sheep. In 1 Samuel 17, 34, the Bible says that he kept his father's sheep. What that means is that he would provide them with a sheepfold. He would secure an area in which they were confined in order to keep them from wandering or going missing. The shepherd didn't want to lose any of the sheep or allow them to wander off. Why? Because it was there in wandering that they'd fall into mischief or into danger. And you and I cannot allow God's law to escape us either. 
We've got to ensure that they're secure in our minds and in our lives. We've got to keep His laws. Not only that, but the word keep means to preserve from falling or from danger, to protect, to guard, or sustain. Again, in 1 Samuel 17, 34, And David said to Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. At this point now, not only is he trying to protect them by creating a barrier to keep them from getting out, now he's literally going to have to fight and protect them and guard them and sustain their, 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 their physical health, if you will. And this means to keep, in this case, is to preserve, to protect, and sustain. And that's what God does for you and I. And that's what we need to do with God's laws. In the book of Genesis 25, 15, he says, And behold, I am with thee and will keep thee. He says, I am with thee and I will keep thee. I will preserve you and I will protect you and I will sustain you. See, God's laws are constantly under attack. And if we hope to keep them alive and well in our lives, our homes, our ministry at work, then we're going to have to take a stand against the elements that seek to discredit them, to dismiss them as fables, and discard them in our culture and society. We're going to have to keep His law. Another definition, however, of keep is to tend, to have the care of. When we think of this, we can't help but consider Genesis 2, verse 15, when the Bible says, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. To keep it. How often have you found yourself plowing up the precious truths found in the fertile field of the Word of God? we got to continue to unearth its riches and share those riches with others. Hey, we understand that God is big enough to preserve His Word. I get that. And He's done a pretty good job of it through the years, without a doubt. However, we do have a responsibility to keep His will and His ways alive in our ever-changing culture. They were to keep His laws in their hearts. They were to keep His laws on their lips. They were to keep His laws in their lives. What is the standard response to a child of God as he reviews and remembers what God has done for him through the years, as he recognizes that God has kept his promises, provided for him and protected him and prospered him through the years, what is the standard response? We're to observe his statutes. We are to keep his laws. And finally, we're to praise His name. Well, God wants our hearts full of gratitude. 
in Psalm chapter 105, verse 45, that they might observe his statutes. They might keep his laws. And he goes on finally to say, praise ye the Lord. Because of all that I have done for you, I want you to praise my name. How rare is gratitude in our lives? Not just for, before God, but gratitude before others. How grateful we are we for, for that person that's praying? How grateful are we for that person that cares? How grateful are we for that person that's there for us in the midst of a difficult time? Oh, they may not be holding our hand through it, but we know their prayers and their heart goes with us. We know that we are not alone. But not only is God there on our side, but so many others are rooting for us. Oh, we ought to be grateful for that. How grateful are we for the provision that God has given us? Oh, I know that the budget gets tight and it gets difficult to make the bills, but hold on, God has still blessed and provided and met the need. How thankful and grateful are we? How grateful are we for that wife or husband God has allowed us to have, that gift that he's given us. And I know difficulties can come in a life, and I know that there can be friction and there can be difficulties, but may we never forget how blessed we are from our Heavenly Father that He gave to us or gave to us someone to share our life with. And may we remember that the next time we want to throw an ill-advised dart at them. So much is neglected concerning God and His Word when we fail to recognize how active God has been in our lives. You say, what do you mean? Well, I believe our obedience to God and His Word is often proportionate to our gratitude toward Him. Someone says, I'm so grateful to God. Well, then let us look at your life now. Because in viewing your life, we will see a life of obedience. Oh, I'm grateful. I just don't. Okay. Our children, I'm so grateful to be a part of this family, but don't ask me to make my bed. Don't ask me to take a bath every night. Don't ask me to go to school and learn my ABCs. Don't ask me to take out the trash or to help around the house. Oh, I'm grateful for being here, but not at that cost. Okay. You can tell me you're grateful all day long, teenager, but if that's your attitude, I've got your number. You know what? The truth is God's got our number too, don't he? He knows. Words slide off our tongues like butter on, hot, on a hot night. So easy to say, I love you. So easy to say, I'm thankful. But our actions and our deeds truly reveal the sincerity of those words or the deception of them. Much gratitude equals much obedience. So the psalmist reminds Israel of its history. 
And how God has supernaturally, miraculously provided, protected, delivered, rescued, and defended them through the years. He goes on to express God's expectation. The standard, if you will, as a result of everything that He did for them. He says simply, Verse 5, 45, excuse me. They that, no, they that might observe, that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise you the Lord. This morning we, we talked about Romans chapter 12, verse 1. How appropriate does that fit again tonight? As we think about those mercies of God. And then about our reasonable service. Is it not really the same principle? The writer spends, as we said, the first 11 chapters pointing out those unprecedented mercies of God. Then he finally says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's our reasonable service. After everything God has done, you don't understand how busy I am. Man, I've got responsibilities. I know. We all do. I promise you this. This is something I know. That one day on the other side, most of what we consider to be so important will be found to be wasted time. Now we can sit around all day and we can justify what we think and do and say and where we go and the th- priorities that we have, but honestly, I am convinced that when I get to heaven, so much of what I thought was so important, I'll realize I wasted time. Let us be careful that we always remember what He has done for us. Let's remember what he's given to us and he's provided for us and let's be grateful and let's do what the standard response should be. I mean, seeing how much God has done for us, why wouldn't we observe his statutes? Seeing how much God has done for us, why wouldn't we keep his laws? Seeing how much God has done for us, why wouldn't we praise his name? As I close, and I am, I'm closing. The Israelites put their lives and past to music. And we see the Psalms. And in order to remember them, in order to reflect them properly, in order to save them and preserve them through the years and through generation after generation, they put their life and their past to music. 
I have a question tonight for you. Here's the question. If your life and past were put to music, would it be a Christ-honoring song or a worldly one? They say we all walk to the beat of a different drum sometimes. That shouldn't be the case with believers. We should all be walking to the same beat. There is no multiculturalism in Christianity. It is all one culture. A biblical culture. A Bible culture. There is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. There's no difference between a black man or woman than a white man or woman or a Chinese man or woman or somebody from some other nation or country. God doesn't make the distinctions that we do. You are either in Christ, you are the either lost without him, or you are a Jew. There's only three distinctions we find in the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, I've got it mixed up now. That's not the right verse, I don't think, but I'm thinking 5.23. There's three different groups. The moment you leave the lost, the moment you are taken from the world, you become part of the body of Christ, the church. There is only a biblical standard to live by, not a cultural one that the world sets. It's a biblical culture God sets. That's why when I go to the Philippines, I should be able to find a church just like this. I go to Africa, I should be able to find a church just like this. If this church is a biblical church, then I should be able to find a church just like this. You know what I found? They're there. Because the Bible is the same no matter where, when you pick it up. Everywhere you go, it's the same. When everyone and everything else in the world is changing, this word stands. The Bible stands, just like the choir sang tonight. Your life and past were put to music. Let's just make it your past since you've been a child of God. Since you've received and accepted Christ, if your life and past were put to music, would it be a Christ-honoring song? Or would there be portions of the world in it? Boy, listen, if our song isn't what it ought to be tonight, then let's just change our tune. Let's change our tune. You can make that decision tonight. You can say, tonight I'm going to change my tune. I want my life to be different. I want it to be Christ-honoring. I don't want to look at some of the things I've been looking at, and I don't want to say some of the things I've been saying. I'm no longer going to go some of those places, and I'm not going to be 
involved with certain things and people and situations and circumstances. I'm not going to submit myself and surrender myself to the flesh or give opportunity for the flesh. I want to honor Christ. I want my song to be pleasing to the Lord. I'm going to change my tune tonight. Will you change your tune? If it needs changed, you be man enough, woman enough, Christian enough to do it. Let's be honest. It's easy to coast. So I told the guys Friday night, it's easy to settle. But we're called to go the extra mile. That's not easy. But it's worth it. May God help us. I know God, the Holy Spirit, has to speak to you. But can I tell you and remind you that he gave you a gift, your pastor. Your pastor's not perfect, so if you want to use that, you can use it all day and twice on Sunday to excuse your life and the errors and the fundamental failures that you have in your heart. Oh, yeah, you can, oh, yeah. Yeah, just use me as the example, and you'll have a clean slate in your own mind's eye. But you can't, because the standard isn't your pastor tonight. The standard is none other than Jesus Christ. And I just want to encourage you to start playing a different tune if it's not a Christ-honoring tune with your life. Let's change that tune. And let's get on board with Him. Children of Israel, Man, the Psalms were written so they'd remember always the goodness and grace of God. And the truth is, your life and mine is writing a song so that those that come behind us can follow the tune. What will they hear? Will that tune lead them closer to Jesus or will it take them closer to the world? Father, we come to you. We thank you for all you've done for us. And Lord, we uh, are certainly a needy people tonight. And Lord, I do believe that on a Sunday night uh, at Community Baptist Temple, there's a group of people that have made decisions and desire to be close to you and want to walk with you. But Lord, this whole world has truly been so deceptive, not only in their life, I'm sure, but in my own. And it's so easy to begin to adapt to the world or to conform to the world to some degree or another. It's so easy, Father, for our tune to start sounding like the world's. Father, help us, Lord, to have a distinctive sound. Father, may we change our tune if it's started to go in a direction that doesn't honor you and please you. Father, may you just bless us and help us to leave a legacy Provide the next generation with a song that will lead them closer to Jesus if they simply follow it. We'll thank you. We'll praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. Every head bowed. Every eye closed. Dad, what kind of song?